Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. This week I want to look at a collection of poems called Pit Lullabies. And that collection was published in 2022. And it is a collection of poems written by Jessica Trainer, who is a Dublin-born poet who I like a great deal. And so I want to share my excitement about her work with you guys. I'm going to begin by saying that uh, a friend of mine recommended a poem to me, actually a, a poet to me, and then waited my reply. And after a couple of days, I called back and said, sorry, but I found him a bit too understandable. And um, he was um, slightly irate at this. But what I meant was that it was easy to get to most of the meaning in the poems. And then I didn't find the really important hard bit at the core. Some poems have the hard bit on the outside, like um, some sort of carapace. The way it works with Jessica Trainer, in my experience of her work, is that it feels quite straightforward when you read it, and then you get deeper and deeper, and it gets more and more exciting. I read an interview with Jessica Trainer. She is a woman who has written for opera, written for the theatre. She teaches creative writing. She is a journalist. She does reviews of poems. She does a lot. And interestingly, she said that working in the theatre had an influence on her poetry because the uh, theatrical writer has to, and I quote, explore big complex themes using language that sounds natural. And that's what she tries to do with her poetry, to avoid being self-consciously poetic, as she puts it, and to use her literal voice. And it is a tremendous skill of the uh, dramatic writer that they get across really big themes. But if the characters talk in uh, highfalutin and complex ways, the whole thing can collapse. So it's a real skill Language that sounds like people talking, but enormous concepts being discussed. And I think that is how Jessica's, I'm going to call her Jessica, I've never met her, but I'm going to call her Jessica. Uh, that is how her poetry works for me. So this collection, Pit Lullabies, there is a cycle of poems called An Island Sings, I-S-L-A-N-D, An Island Sings. And it's concerned with many things, but certainly with parenthood. And I'd like to read you a poem, uh, the second poem in that cycle, which is called The Parent's Song. The opening line is, each sleep is a miracle. Now, anyone who's a parent will know that feeling for when the baby is very young. And when it says each sleep is a miracle, I don't think that necessarily just means the baby going to sleep, but the parent getting any sleep is also... I know this is a cliché about parenthood, but 
my partner and I, our baby, woke regularly at 4.30 in the morning, as I used to describe it. But you realise when you wake up regularly at 4.30 in the morning that 4.30 is not in the morning. It's actually very much in the middle of the night. And uh, you wake up with flu every time you wake up at 4.30 in the morning, or that is what it feels like. So each sleep is a miracle is a great opener to drag in parents or anyone who is interested in the, the strange activities of parents. I have no idea, by the way, if Jessica Trainer is a parent. I don't need to know that. I just need to know she's a brilliant poet and can conjure up experiences that she doesn't need to have had. Okay, each sleep is a miracle. I'm tempted to read you another bit. I'm just going to do two quick bits. There's a poem in the same sequence, which is called Song of the Insomniac. And it's about a parent who can't sleep. And um, she or he, I think it's a she, imagines that she's walking on the sea And then the focus comes back to the bedroom and she says, and back in our room, I tally the whirls on your fingertips. Whirls, W-H-O-R-L-S, spirals, if you like. She's just come from a sort of half dream of the sea. And so um, shells have those same whirls. And back in our room, I tally the whirls. In this case, on fingertips, it's going to be fingerprints, obviously. I'm going to get through this. And back in our room, I tally the whirls on your fingertips, your eyelashes, each flicker of the eyelid that numbers your dreams. And that studying of your sleeping baby and indeed your non-sleeping baby is a big part of early parenthood. You know, when you're really, really, in case you don't have kids, you know, when you're really madly in love with someone and you can be 12 or you can be 50 and what you want to do is spend all day with them and just talk to them all the time and look at them and stare at them and just be in their company. But you can't because you'll frighten them off and you have to play a bit hard to get and all that. When you have a baby, you don't have to do that. So you really, really love them and you can just look at them and spend all day with them and talk to them. So that's brilliant. That's one of the big, brilliant bits of it. One more bit from another poem and then I'll go back to the parents' song. I do love a digression. And also I want to give you a flavour of Pitt Lullaby's The Whole Collection. Did I mention it came out in 2022? If I didn't. I have now, and if I did, I've reiterated. Right, this next poem, Turbulence, is about being on a plane when you get turbulence and you think that's it, we're going to crash. And one thing about I also discovered about becoming a parent is flight, plane travel, becomes much more terrifying because you start thinking about death more because you think I've got responsibilities now, I have duties to carry out. I want to at least get them to university so I can't afford a plane crash. That's how you think, mad as it may sound. So they're experiencing turbulence. The speaker says, the terrified speaker, what does the mother three rows back whisper into her sleeping baby's ear? 
Can someone in the moments it will take for us to topple from the sky, for us to splash star-like on the ground, for lit gasoline to obliterate our eyes and teeth? This is someone who's frightened on a plane, isn't it? It's the fabulous catastrophizing imagination of the frightened flyer. So, for us to splash starlight on the ground, for lit gasoline to obliterate our eyes and teeth. In those precious seconds, she's talking about the seconds that you're in uh, applying hurtling towards the ground. In those precious seconds, can someone teach me that language? That language being the language that the mother three rows back whispers into her sleeping baby's ear. Now, she doesn't have her baby on the plane, so what would be the point of having that language? Well, I think the suggestion is that it's some sort of mystical mother-baby language that you say to your sleeping baby, and it's not about place or geography. The baby doesn't have to be in your arms. It will still hear you, still understand, still remember what you said, even if you're on a plane hurtling towards the ground and that baby is in a lovely cot somewhere at home. So each sleep is a miracle. I think you start using the word miracle a lot when you have a baby because it does seem a bit supernatural and mystical, some of that stuff. You do hear about things like a mother being able to whisper sleeping baby talk on a plane and the baby hearing it many, many miles away and don't dismiss it as nonsense. Okay, that's one line. This could be a long podcast. No, it won't. I'm going to be um, brisk. Each sleep is a miracle. I lower the baby's fist towards her chest as it unclenches, only for it to spring back blackberry firm, for her arms to begin the steam paddle flail that shoes away the night and all its monsters. Oh, it's good. It's good. I lower the baby's fist. I don't know what it is about babies and clenched fists, but they tend to go into that Superman pose up, up and away without actually ascending, generally speaking. And I lower the baby's fist, as she says in the second line, and that's the first hint that the baby's world and its sleeping life, etc., are not as blissful and peaceful as we might imagine. Why the clench fist? The anxiety of the baby seems to be just under the surface. And we don't think of that in a baby, but emerging as a person must be a stressful activity. Each sleep is a miracle. I lower the baby's fist. So the first look we get at the baby, it's got a clenched fist, which is raised. I lower the baby's fist towards her chest as it unclenches only for it to spring back blackberry firm. And that is stunning, I think. Blackberry firm. Because a blackberry, unless it's overripe, when you pick it up, has got a firmness about it. But you know it wouldn't take very much to go through that firmness and reduce it to pulp. So for a baby's 
fist for a baby's thrusting arm. Blackberry firm is perfect. It is firm, but it's vulnerable and you have to be careful and you don't want to damage it. Only for it to spring back blackberry firm, for her arms to begin the steam paddle flail that shoes away the night and all its monsters. So again, that hint that the baby's inner life might not be completely blissful. Her arms begin the steam paddle flail, so she starts swinging her arms about, that shoes away the night and all its monsters. I don't think I've ever thought about this before, that maybe sleep is quite a terrifying thing if you don't know what it is and don't understand. You seem to be slipping back into the womb, perhaps, into a darkness you don't understand. Nearly there with this poem. How hard she works to keep her eyes open, fixed on mine in alarm as sleep settles its ashes on her. How hard she works to keep her eyes open, and babies do seem determined to stay awake, even though you know they're exhausted. Her eyes open, fixed on mine in alarm. So she looks alarmed, and obviously that's a good word to choose because alarms are what we use to wake up. So it's the the right word here. Fixed on mine in alarm. Obviously here it mainly refers to distress. As sleep settles its ashes on her. And I think that gives us an idea Yes, I would be alarmed if I thought of sleep settling its ashes on me because it reminds me of sleep's relationship to death. It is a little death. And maybe a baby who's only just discovered life is more aware of that. Okay, last seven lines. In her world, a storm is raging. Her rest is a butterfly flying ragged on the gale. I take her hand, wrap her fist in mine, help her punch through to a place petal soft. So, in her world, a storm is raging. Who ever thought of that going on inside a non-sleeping baby? But it makes absolute sense. Her rest is a butterfly. So it's a flickering, flittering, fluttering around. It's that kind of rest. It's beautiful, like every butterfly, and vulnerable, like every butterfly. But it it never really rests. It's constantly fluttering, flying ragged on the gale. And this idea of there's a storm raging in her world there is a gale in which she's a butterfly that sounds terrifying and that really does emphasize the vulnerability what chance does a butterfly have in a gale but her mother is there and these last four lines i take her hand wrap her fist in mine help her punch through to a place petal soft So the wisdom of this speaker, this mother, I take her hand, wrap her fist in mine, so I'm going to make a fist as well. I'm not going to pretend everything is lovely 
and sweet and peaceful. I'm going to come fighting on your behalf. I'm not going to resist your sort of natural instinct to battle and to fight and to shoo away the monsters. I'm going to add my own fist to it. We're in this together, girl. Um, So she's going to say at the end, help her punch through to a place petal soft. How beautiful that is. Punch through to a place petal soft. So let that natural instinct to fight sleep because of its scary ashes on her, because of the monsters, because of the storm blowing this poor butterfly of a child around Help her to fight her way through that. And eventually she will break through to a place petal soft. Sleep, rest, bliss. That's what it's about. Okay. The final poem I want to look at is a switch of this. It's about um, a child reacting to an activity that she shares with her parents. And this poem, which I must say is my favourite poem in the collection, is called Nureyev in Dublin. And most of you will know that Rudolf Nureyev was a very, very famous Russian ballet dancer who defected to the West. And um, Nureyev in Dublin... I did a little bit of research on this and found that uh, Rudolf Nureyev danced at the Point Theatre in Dublin in August 1990, just over a year before his death. And I never want to say that the speaker of the poem is the writer of the poem. Jessica Trainer would have been about six or seven at that time. I don't know if she went to the uh, ballet, but she's the right age, I would say, for the child in this poem. Okay, they're short stanzas, and I'm going to give you the first couple. Nureyev in Dublin. And the first five stanzas, I should say, are all set in a car, during a car journey on the way to this ballet. First two stanzas. As we drive, rain licks the car's windows. With each thundercrack, I'm shrieking, God is on the toilet! And my mother's warnings, delivered with a static sizzle, raise hairs on my arms to dancers on full point. Right. As we drive, rain licks the car's windows. With each thundercrack, I'm shrieking. It's a dramatic opening. As I record this, the rain is actually hitting my window so quite hard. I hope you can hear it. It'll be a fabulous backdrop for this opening to the poem. As we drive, rain licks the car's windows. With each thundercrack, I'm shrieking. And then in block capitals to suggest volume, God is on the toilet. Now then. It's a dramatic opening. And you remember what I said that um, Jessica tries to retain a natural vocabulary, a natural language 
in her poems, no matter how big a subject she might be discussing, like a playwright would do, so that the people sound like real people and the poem sounds like real talk. As we drive, rain licks the car's windows. That already we've got a metaphor there. The rain is licking the car's windows. So we start off quite poetic. By the way, I'm bandying the word poetic around, assuming that we all think the same about it. I'm talking about language that drips with rhythm and structure and perhaps rhyme metaphors, similes, rich, a sort of pyrotechnic display of what language can be. Most people don't speak like that most of the time. And if a poem really wallows in that type of language, it can feel unreal in some ways. Not usually if it's handled by a brilliant poet, but that is not the way that Jessica works. She wants it to sound like people talking and then the clever stuff will emanate from that. As we drive, rain licks the car's windows. With each thundercrack, I'm shrieking, God is on the toilet. Now, God is on the toilet feels like such a crass thing to have in the first stanza of a poem. It's raining, there's thunder, God is on the toilet. So this rain suddenly represents God's urine and flatulence. It's pretty awful. And I think it's deliberately crass because it's a child talking and it tells us it's a child immediately because really only a child is going to shout God is on the toilet. And I think it's deliberately unpoetic if you like it's deliberately confronting us with this is a real family and a real child and a real situation and when I say real I don't mean that it necessarily factually happened but I mean we need to accept it as uh, real events not necessarily factual but not fantastic As we drive, rain licks the car's windows. With each thundercrack, I'm shrieking, God is on the toilet. And my mother's warnings, delivered with a static sizzle, raise hairs on my arms to dancers on full point. I think Jessica thinks, I've done my God is on the toilet. Now I can go back to enjoying a bit of poetic language. And my mother's warnings, you know, she's being told off, you know, that reaching back into the back seat that parents do when a kid is misbehaving. My mother's warnings delivered with a static sizzle. Static, possibly, because when you get really angry in a car and uh, you are kind of stuck, you have to sit and be uh, angry and remain static when you actually want to jump up and down with rage. And maybe that sort of suppressed energy, that suppressed anger would manifest itself as the slow hum of a subdued but menacing sizzle. That's one possibility. I think the most obvious um, reason for it being a static sizzle is it's like static electricity. Raise hairs on my arms to dancers on full point. 
So the mother's warnings about her behaviour, about shouting out, about perhaps about blaspheming in uh, saying that God is on the toilet, they give the child, in this case the speaker, a static sizzle, maybe fear, maybe the excitement of being the centre of attention when you're a child, but it raises the hairs on my arms to dancers on full point. And I love that. It's such a beautiful thing. We know the poem's called Nuriev in Dublin. We know he's a ballet dancer. And now the child being told off, the hairs on her arms stand up to dancers on full point. It's as if the kid's head is so full of ballet and anticipation of ballet that she's starting to think in balletic metaphors. Next three stanzas. But something wonderful is about to happen. We are going to the ballet so my mother can unravel her still young frame, folded like the coat hangers my dad uses to jimmy the car lock. And she will dance back through dislocated hips, missed scholarships, till she's pink-petaled confection. Now, as ultra-aware poetry readers, we're thinking, oh, they're going to the ballet and her mom is someone, it seems, who did ballet in her youth, and so she'll be able to rewind the years past all the disappointments, the injuries that caused her to stop dancing, back to her glory days when she looked and danced like a sort of pink angel and that works that works with uh, all its loveliness but also because we have a child speaker in this poem that gives us scope for this trip to the ballet to involve a a literal misunderstanding an, an actual belief that her mom is going to dance tonight. I have to say I prefer that interpretation to uh, the mom just having a night of sweet nostalgia. What is the point of having a child narrator if you can't utilise all that potential for naivety and misunderstanding? So I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with that that the speaker that, that this little girl actually is expecting her mum to dance. But something wonderful is about to happen. We're going to the ballet so my mother can unravel her still young frame folded like the coat hangers my dad uses to jimmy the car lock. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with that activity, but why are coat hangers? If straightened, if unfolded and unravelled like the child believes her mother is going to be at the ballet, you can use them then to just pull up the lock on the car door, just get them through the top of the car window, lift up the lock, and you can get into a car. If you lock the keys in the car, it can be essential. Yes, I've done it, but not for a very long time. So... That is the child's misunderstanding. She thinks her mom's going to be at the ballet. But then, and she will dance back through dislocated hips, missed scholarships, 
till she's pink petaled confection. Now that is not a childlike conceit. I doubt that a, a five or six year old child, if that's what this is, it certainly is in that area, would know about her mother's dislocated hips or her missed scholarships. But it doesn't matter. I think I like that that is all mixed together, that the the voice of the writer gives that child a, a, a bit extra in the excitement of her mother again is going to do ballet like she's told her probably many times she used to do. Let's just hear those three stanzas again. But something wonderful is about to happen. We're going to the ballet so my mother can unravel her still young frame folded like the coat hangers my dad uses to jimmy the car lock and she will dance back through dislocated hips, miss scholarships till she is pink petaled confection. And yes, it does remind me of that child punching through to a place petal soft, something very appealing and beautiful and delicate. And I think a tutu on a ballerina is flower-like. It does look like petals emanating from a, from a stem. I don't think that is too much of a stretch. There's something very beautiful about the idea of her mum's second chance here. She will unravel, she will dance back through dislocated hips, miss scholarships till she's pink-petaled confection. It doesn't matter that it's incorrect. It doesn't matter that it's misunderstood. It isn't going to happen. We don't know for sure at this stage in the poem. I suppose she could be a dancer in the ballet with Nuriev, but I think we know the kids got it wrong. But even so, her imagination of her mother's resurrection as a young ballet dancer is beautiful. One of the great misunderstandings I've read recently in poetry. OK, then we come to the end of the poem, the last two stanzas. Now, that first chunk I've read you, the first five stanzas, are all in the car on the way there. Now... We're at the ballet. But instead, we get Nuriev, ash-powdered, wire-thin, weighted by sickness. And I talk too loud. Bristle sweet papers. I'm going to stop there because it's a stanza break and also I just want to look at those five lines. But instead, we get Nuriev, and the poem changes there. All that hope and all that anticipation and excitement at seeing her mother dance. But instead, we get one of the great ballet dancers of all time. But for a kid, it's not your mom, is he? It's really not your mom getting her mojo back. But instead, we get Nuriev. And remember, this is Nuriev towards the end, as is obvious from the poem. Ash-powdered wire thin and you'll remember in the parents song that poem i read before how hard speaking of her child how hard she works to keep her eyes open fixed on mine in alarm as sleep settles its ashes on her 
that image of ashes to do with death, I suppose, obviously, because of um, that's how a lot of people end up. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So there's something of the grave about Nureyev, certainly uh, something of the urn. But instead we get Nureyev ash-powdered, wire-thin. And if you see pictures of um, Nureyev from that period towards the end, his stage makeup, his powdering does make him look very white, wire-thin. So that reminds us of that coat hanger. And she looks forward to her mother unravelling and becoming that um, still young frame, that long, thin coat hanger shape. But here, wire thin doesn't sound so good. And then we get the contradiction. Ash powdered, wire thin, weighted by sickness. And you don't think of sickness providing weight. It usually removes weight. It usually makes people wire thin. So he is wire thin. He is unfolded like she hoped her mother would be. But the weight here is a gain, a terrible gain of sickness. That's what weighs him. It weighs him down. He used to be like a bird, Nureyev, and now that's gone. The sickness is this terrible anchor holding him down. And I talk too loud, bristle sweet paper. So we get the feeling that this terrible drama is happening on stage. This great, this hero, this legend has been reduced to the worst, most suffering kind of humanity. A sick, thin, ash-powdered figure. And I talk too loud, bristle sweet papers. Life is still there. The kid, amidst the tragedy, not really getting it. Or does she? Well, then we get the car journey home. We've left the theatre now. And I'm going to read that last bit because it, the line runs across the stanzas. And I talk too loud, bristle sweet papers. Take home on my shoulders... Nureyev's heavy legs and the stage whispering that's enough now enough flight enough so this kid takes home on my shoulders Nureyev's heavy legs and that's a fabulous flip of that image of a child on an adult's shoulders now she's bearing on her shoulders this memory of this ballet dancer who seems heavy, who seems weighed down by his illness. And I talk too loud, bristle sweet papers, take home on my shoulders Nureyev's heavy legs. And there's a terrible sadness about that. That kid that was all shouting about God on the toilet, bristling sweet papers, talking too loud. This image of this dying ballet dancer has weighed her down. His heavy 
legs. Again, white applied to the sort of whiteless nature of the ballet star. As he dies, he seems to get heavier instead of lighter. The reality of the legend Nureyev is not as good as the imagined childlike legend of her mother's return to dance. That, because it was in the kid's imagination, had everything. She was going to be pink-petaled confection, but real ballet, even though it's by one of the greats, was not so good. And it's interesting that the child's crass toilet remark and her misunderstanding of the fact that it was, wasn't her mom who was going to dance and do the ballet. On the dark return journey home, it's all become insight now and empathy, like the child has somehow got some deeper understanding of what she's seen. And she really gets the tragedy of it. Let's hear it again. And I talk too loud, bristle, sweet papers. Okay, and then we're in the car. Take home on my shoulders Nureyev's heavy legs and the stage whispering. That's enough now. Enough flight. Enough. And I love, love that. Because she's a kid, she can hear the stage whispering. She's okay with that kind of fantasy but it's so true the stage that has been like a mother to Nureyev has been the place where he has been at his greatest he's whispering that's enough now enough flight enough and I think flight not just is amazing dancing the way he's challenged I suppose our gravitational chains, um, but the way he's kicked against normality, the way he left Soviet Russia, that kind of flight, a life of rebellion and freedom and free expression and creativity, not just jumping into the air, but all that. And it sounds that last bit, those last three lines, which are in italics to suggest the voice of the stage talking to its sick child. And it sounds like a mother talking to a, a real sick child. That's enough now. Enough flight. Enough. Maybe if her mother actually had danced the speaker's mother, maybe she'd have felt like this felt that it was enough flight, that it was time to give up. But um, here, fabulously, it's tied to someone we all know. We can share the tragedy in maybe a way we couldn't have shared the idea that a mother couldn't do it anymore. Now we're getting a sense of someone who we kind of know, who we knew was brilliant, and he can't do it anymore. But the kid responds to it because... She is a kid, and because this poetry collection, Pit Lullabies, is heavily concerned with parenthood, she sees the stage as a parent, and she responds 
like she was sick and her mom was talking to her and now the stage is the mother that's enough now enough flight enough it's a beautiful poem from a beautiful collection and i've said beautiful a lot during this podcast i realize sorry about that but if you read jessica trainer's pit lullabies you'll realize why Thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. There'll be less poetry in that, but more jokes. See you next week.